0: Chapter Three Part Two of The Mystery of Thirty One New Inn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Seidel. The Mystery of Thirty One New Inn. Chapter Three A Chiel's Amang Ye Taken Notes. Part Two. Something of this kind must have happened to me now. Preoccupied as I was by the condition of the patient, the professional habit of rapid and close observation caused me to direct a searching glance at the man before me. It was only a brief glance, for Mr. Weiss, perhaps embarrassed by my keen regard of him, almost immediately withdrew into the shadow and my attention seemed to be principally occupied by the odd contrast between the pallor of his face and the redness of his nose, and by the peculiar stiff, bristly character of his eyebrows. But there was another fact, and a very curious one, that was observed by me subconsciously and instantly forgotten, to be revived later when I reflected on the events of the night. It was this. As Mr. Weiss stood, with his head slightly turned, I was able to look through one glass of his spectacles at the wall beyond. On the wall was a framed print, and the edge of the frame, seen through the spectacle glass, appeared quite unaltered and free from distortion, magnification, or reduction, as if seen through plain window glass. And yet the reflections of the candle flame in the spectacles showed the flame upside down, proving conclusively that the glasses were concave on one surface, at least. The strange phenomenon was visible only for a moment or two, and as it passed out of my sight, it passed also out of my mind. "'No,' I said, replying to the last question. "'I can think of no way in which he could have effectually hidden a store of morphine. Judging by the symptoms, he has taken a large dose.' And, if he has been in the habit of consuming large quantities, his stock would be pretty bulky. I can offer no suggestion whatsoever. I suppose you consider him quite out of danger now? Oh, not at all. I think we can pull him round if we persevere. But he must not be allowed to sink back into a state of coma. We must keep him on the move until the effects of the drug have really passed off. If you will put him into his dressing-gown, we will walk him up and down the room for a while. But is that safe? Mr. Weiss asked, anxiously. Quite safe, I answered. I will watch his pulse carefully. The danger is in the possibility, or rather the certainty, of a relapse if he is not kept moving. With obvious unwillingness and disapproval, Mr. Weiss produced a dressing-gown, and together we invested the patient in it. THEN WE DRAGGED HIM, VERY LIMP, BUT NOT ENTIRELY UNRESISTING, OUT OF THE BED AND STOOD HIM ON HIS FEET. HE OPENED HIS EYES AND BLINKED, OWLISHLY, FIRST AT ONE AND THEN THE OTHER OF US, AND MUMBLED A FEW UNINTELLIGIBLE WORDS OF PROTEST, REGARDLESS OF WHICH WE THRUST HIS FEET INTO SLIPPERS AND ENDEAVORED TO MAKE HIM WALK. AT FIRST HE SEEMED UNABLE TO STAND, AND WE HAD TO SUPPORT HIM BY HIS ARMS AS WE URGED HIM FORWARD. BUT PRESENTLY HIS TRAILING LEGS BEGAN TO MAKE DEFINITE WALKING MOVEMENTS, AND AFTER ONE OR TWO TURNS UP AND DOWN THE ROOM, HE WAS NOT ONLY ABLE PARTLY TO SUPPORT HIS WEIGHT, BUT SHOWED EVIDENCE OF REVIVING CONSCIOUSNESS IN THE FORM OF uh, MORE ENERGETIC PROTESTS. AT THIS POINT MR. WEISS ASTONISHED ME BY TRANSFERRING THE ARM THAT HE HELD TO THE housekeeper. IF YOU WILL EXCUSE ME, DOCTOR, SAID HE, I will go now and attend to some rather important business that I have had to leave unfinished. Mrs. Schallabaum will be able to give you all the assistance that you require, and will order the carriage when you think it safe to leave the patient. In case I should not see you again, I will say good-night. I hope you won't think me very unceremonious." He shook hands with me and went out of the room leaving me, as I have said, profoundly astonished that he should consider any business of more moment than the condition of his friend, whose life even now was but hanging by a thread. However, it was really no concern of mine I could do without him, and the resuscitation of this unfortunate half-dead man gave me occupation enough to engross my whole attention. The melancholy progress up and down the room recommenced, and with it, the mumbled protests from the patient. As we walked, and especially as we turned, I caught frequent glimpses of the housekeeper's face, but it was nearly always in profile. She appeared to avoid looking at me in the face, though she did so once or twice, and on each of these occasions her eyes were directed at me in a normal manner, without any sign of a squint. Nevertheless I had the impression that when her face was turned away from me, she squinted. The swivel eye, the left, was towards me as she held the patient's right arm, and it was almost continuously turned in my direction, whereas I felt convinced that she really was looking straight before her, though of course her right eye was invisible to me. It struck me, even at the time, as an odd affair, but I was too much concerned about my charge to give it much consideration. Meanwhile the patient continued to revive apace, and the more he revived the more energetically did he protest against this wearisome perambulation but he was evidently a polite gentleman for muddled as his faculties were he managed to clothe his objections in courteous and even gracious forms of speech singularly out of agreement with the character that mr weiss had given him i thank you he mumbled thickly very good takes much trouble think i'll lie down now he looked wistfully at the bed, but I wheeled him about and marched him once more down the room. He submitted, unresistingly, but as we again approached the bed, he reopened the matter. "'Quite sufficient, thank you. Get back to bed now. Much obliged for all your kindness.' Here I turned him round. "'No, really. I'm feeling rather tired. Should like to lie down now, if would be so good.' you must walk about a little longer mr graves i said it would be very bad for you to go to sleep again he looked at me with a curious dull surprise and reflected a while as if in some perplexity then he looked at me again and said Think, sir you are mistake mistaken me miss here mrs schallibaum interrupted sharply the doctor thinks it's good for you to walk about you've been sleeping too much he doesn't want you to sleep any more just now." "'Don't want her sleep, want her lie down,' said the patient. But you mustn't lie down for a little while. You must walk about for a few minutes more. And you'd better not talk. Just walk up and down." "'Well, there's no harm in his talking,' said I. In fact, it's good for him. It will help to keep him awake. "'I should think it would tire him,' said Mrs. Chalabon. And it worries me to hear him asking to lie down when we can't let him. She spoke sharply, and in an unnecessarily high tone, so that the patient could not fail to hear. Apparently he took in the very broad hint contained in the concluding sentence, for he trudged wearily and unsteadily up and down the room for some time without speaking, though he continued to look at me from time to time as if something in my appearance puzzled him exceedingly. At length his intolerable longing for repose overcame his politeness, and he returned to the attack surely i've walked enough now feeling very tired am really would you be kind as let me lie down for a few minutes don't you think he might lie down for a little while mrs shalabaum asked i felt his pulse and decided that he was really becoming fatigued and that it would be wiser not to overdo the exercise while he was so weak accordingly i consented to his returning to bed and turned him round in that direction whereupon he tottered gleefully towards his resting place like a tired horse heading for its stable as soon as he was tucked in i gave him a full cup of coffee which he drank with some avidity as if thirsty then i sat down by the bedside and with a view to keeping him awake began once more to ply him with questions does your headache mr graves i asked the doctor says does your headache mrs shallabom squalled so loudly that the patient started perceptibly. "'I heard him, my dear girl,' he answered with a faint smile. "'Not deaf, you know. Yes, it aches a good deal. But I think this gentleman mistakes—he says you are to keep awake. You mustn't go to sleep again, and you are not to close your eyes.' "'All right, Paul, and open.' And he proceeded forthwith to shut them with an air of infinite peacefulness. I grasped his hand and shook it gently on which he opened his eyes and looked at me sleepily the housekeeper stroked his head keeping her face half turned from me as she had done almost constantly to conceal the squinting eye as i assumed and said need we keep you any longer doctor it is getting very late and you have a long way to go i looked doubtfully at the patient i was loath to leave him distrusting these people as i did But I had my work to do on the morrow, with perhaps a night-call or two in the interval, and the endurance even of a general practitioner has its limits. I think I heard the carriage some time ago, Mrs. Schallbaum added. I rose hesitatingly and looked at my watch. It had turned half-past eleven. You understand, I said in a low voice, that the danger is not over. If he is left now he will fall asleep. And in an all-human probability, will never wake. You clearly understand that? Yes, quite clearly. I promise you he shall not be allowed to fall asleep again. As she spoke, she looked at me full in the face for a few moments, and I noticed that her eyes had a perfectly normal appearance, without any trace whatever of a squint. Very well, I said. On that understanding, I will go now and I shall hope to find our friend quite recovered at my next visit. I turned to the patient, who was already dozing, and shook his hand heartily. Good-bye, Mr. Graves, I said. I am sorry to have to disturb your repose so much. But you must keep awake, you know. Won't do to go to sleep. Very well, he replied drowsily. Sorry to give you all this trouble. I'll keep awake but I think you're mistaken. He says it's very important that you shouldn't go to sleep, and that I am to see that you don't. Don't you understand? Yes, I understand. But why does it, gentlemen? Now it's of no use for you to ask a lot of questions, Mrs. Schallbaum said playfully. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Good night, doctor. I'll light you down the stairs, but I won't come down with you, or the patient will be falling asleep again. Taking this definite dismissal, I retired, followed by a dreamily surprised glance from the sick man. The housekeeper held the candle over the balusters until I reached the bottom of the stairs, when I perceived through the open door along the passage a glimmer of light from the carriage-lamps. The coachman was standing just outside, faintly illuminated by the very dim lamp-light, and as I stepped into the carriage he remarked in his Scotch dialect that I Seem to have been making a night of it. He did not wait for any reply, none being in fact needed, but shut the door and locked it. I lit my little pocket lamp and hung it on the back cushion. I even drew the board and notebook from my pocket, but it seemed rather unnecessary to take a fresh set of notes, and to tell the truth, I rather shirked the labor, tired as I was after my late exertions. Besides. I wanted to think over the events of the evening while they were fresh in my memory. Accordingly, I put away the notebook, filled and lighted my pipe, and settled myself to review the incidents attending my second visit to this rather uncanny house. Considered in leisurely retrospect, that visit offered quite a number of problems that called for elucidation. There was the patient's condition, for instance. Any doubt as to the cause of his symptoms was set at rest by the effect of the antidotes. Mr. Graves was certainly under the influence of morphine, and the only doubtful question was how he had become so. That he had taken the poison himself was incredible. No morphinomaniac would take such a knock-down dose. It was practically certain that the poison had been administered by someone else and on mr Weiss's own showing there was no one but himself and the housekeeper who could have administered it and to this conclusion all the other very queer circumstances pointed what were these circumstances they were as i have said numerous though many of them seemed trivial to begin with Mr. Weiss's habit of appearing some time after my arrival and disappearing some time before my departure was decidedly odd. But still more odd was his sudden departure this evening on what looked like a mere pretext. That departure coincided in time with a sick man's recovery of the power of speech. Could it be that Mr. Weiss was afraid that the half-conscious man might say something compromising to him in my presence? It looked rather like it, and yet he had gone away and left me with the patient and the housekeeper. But when I came to think about it, I remembered that Mrs. Schellbaum had shown some anxiety to prevent the patient from talking. She had interrupted him more than once, and had on two occasions broken in when he seemed to be about to ask me some question. I was mistaken about something. What was that something that he wanted to tell me? It had struck me as singular that there should be no coffee in the house but a sufficiency of tea. Germans are not usually tea-drinkers, and they do take coffee. But perhaps there was nothing in this. Rather more remarkable was the invisibility of the coachman. Why could he not be sent to fetch the coffee? And why did not he, rather than the housekeeper, come to take the place of Mr. Weiss when the latter had to go away? There were other points, too. I recalled the word that sounded like Poland, which Mr. Graves had used in speaking to the housekeeper. Apparently it was a Christian name of some kind. But why did Mr. Graves call the woman by her Christian name, when Mr. Weiss addressed her formally as Mrs. Schallbaum? And as to the woman herself, what was the meaning of that curious, disappearing squint? Physically it presented no mystery. The woman had an ordinary divergent squint, and, like many people who suffer from this displacement, could, by strong muscular effort, bring the eyes temporarily into their normal parallel position. I had detected the displacement when she had tried to maintain the effort too long, and the muscular control had given away. But why had she done it? Was it only feminine vanity? Mere sensitiveness respecting a slight personal disfigurement? Might be so. Or there might be some further motive. It was impossible to say. Turning the question over, I suddenly remembered the peculiarity of Mr. Weiss's spectacles. And here I met with a real poser. I had certainly seen through those spectacles as clearly as if they had been plain window-glass. And they had certainly given an inverted reflection of the candle-flame like that thrown from the surface of a concave lens. Now, they obviously could not be both flat and concave, but yet they had the properties peculiar to both flatness and concavity. And there was a further difficulty. If I could see objects unaltered through them, so could Mr. Weiss. But the function of spectacles is to alter the appearances of objects by magnification, reduction, or compensating distortion. If they leave the appearances unchanged, they are useless. I could make nothing of it." After puzzling over it for quite a long time, I had to give it up, which I did, the less unwillingly, inasmuch as the construction of Mr. Weiss's spectacles had no apparent bearing on the case. On arriving home, I looked anxiously at the message-book, and was relieved to find that there were no further visits to be made having made up a mixture for mr graves and handed it to the coachman i raked the ashes of the surgery fire together and sat down to smoke a final pipe while i reflected once more on the singular and suspicious case in which i had become involved but fatigue soon put an end to my meditations and having come to the conclusion that the circumstances demanded a further consultation with thorndyke i turned down the gas to a microscopic blue spark And betook myself to bed. End of chapter three, part two.